So, Aaron, uh, Jaime's going to talk about Alexa. Do you want to go grab a beer while he does that? Oh, more Alexa. <laughs> I'm out of here, guys. See ya. <laughs> before uh, you guys go do that. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 106 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitra, and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Aaron Vay in Whitby, Ontario. Hello there. And I also have Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we have Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hi. Now, you laugh there, Tim, because Jaime didn't say, how's it oh, going, like a gangster. he didn't. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Do I need to redo that and be buttery smooth? Uh, how's it going? No, no, you're always buttery going? smooth. How are you doing, eh? What's going on, Bob? He was like, how are you doing? What are you doing? He's like, give us an A, too. How you doing, eh? We don't do that. Oh, that's right. Tim did that with the last time. It was hilarious. It's not even close oh, to Jaime. Canadian, so easy to pick out once they, you get them talking enough. Mm, eventually, eventually, it's like, ah, they, <laughs> they, they hide so that. well as spies, but then they st- you just let them talk for about five minutes and you'll figure them out. Do we have any Ask MTJC? I think there was one something. Mark tagged something that way. Nolan O'Brien. Yeah, he writes a, to us three days ago, 180 gigabytes per month of data. That costs 540% of the monthly income for many people in the world. We're one percenters on the net. I don't know. Is he trying to make us feel guilty? I'm guilty. <laughs> I feel terrible now. Well, no, I mean, so, so I, and then I basically said, yeah, it's definitely a first world problem for sure was my response. And then um, he said it was worth bringing up as a follow up to our conversation about bandwidth last week. And uh, I recalled that Facebook was doing something about trying to, you know, spread the net, if you will, um, in terms of making, providing internet service for countries and places that didn't have such things. Right. And not, for profit, like just being humanitarians and philanthropic, philanthropic, Tim. Philanthropic. It seems like you know there there may be a profit motive involved at some point in the line here. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I realize that, but but so Greg basically posted a, a, yeah. an article um, about there's uh, they have a self flying drone that uh, basically is designed to create access points for people or something to that effect. Yeah, this so, came out a while ago. Yeah. Yeah, so that was Greg's follow-up on that. He leapt into the conversation. I think he's got filters. Like, every time you say Facebook, Greg's ears peek, peek up, you know? Goes in and, and defends the home team. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, yeah. yeah it's very wily. Test out and start, uh, start trolling him a little bit, see if he picks up. Mm-hmm. Just say Facebook, Facebook, Facebook three times, and you'll get his attention. <laughs> <laughs> he All suddenly right. appears in your living room. Yeah, or in the bathroom mirror behind you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you got follow-up on Chick-fil-A. Oh, yeah, a very, very brief follow-up. So um, That's the best kind. Let's I'm, be honest with I'm, each other. I'm fairly certain that that Tim, Mark, and I had Chick-fil-A at 360 iDev. So I was listening to last week's episode, which I was not oh, on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah, and you guys were talking did. about it. It's like, we Tim, did. I'm pretty sure you tried it when, yeah. when we were all together. Yeah. We went yeah. to that little, like, yeah. I believe I was less than impressed if, that was from, if that's the yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember that, too. And I, I do have to say that it was in a little food court that yeah. we had it, and it and it wasn't quite up to par that the full restaurants are. So that's my defense of Chick-fil-A. So you're, you're a big fan of then, Mark, is what you're saying? I, I think they make a pretty good uh, chicken sandwich. Okay. Um, let's compare it to something that Canadians would understand. Uh, KFC, for example, which is here and also has a chicken sandwich. Do they compare? I think, personally, I think Chick-fil-A is a lot better uh, than KFC. Mm-hmm. However, you know, as I said last time, Chick-fil-A is very controversial in terms of their politics. 
But uh, so I'm not defending the company, only the sandwich. Okay. Well, hey, anybody yeah. is welcome to defend a sandwich. Yeah. Yeah, they make a good sandwich. We have a place here called Swiss Chalet, which has a fairly they, – they do, like, the barbecue chicken thing, and you can buy, like, half a chicken and quarter chicken or whatever off their, their famous barbecue. But um, they also do a chicken sandwich where they pull the meat off and they throw it onto, like, a nice soft Kaiser bun. That may be something comparable mm. to what Chick, Chick-fil-A nah, is. No, Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A is, is fried. It is fried. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. okay, deep fried? Okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah. Never mind. Well, I think yeah. they have a grilled option as well. But no, but this is – like, that's that. like a chicken breast or processed right. chicken patty. Yeah, uh, so chalet is like, you know, pulling literal chicken meat off the bones and putting it yeah. between two slices oh, okay, of bread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's kind of like a pulled pork, but not quite as extreme. pulled chicken. Yeah, pulled yeah. chicken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it is glorious. I cannot say nice things about Swiss chalet. I'm a big fan. It's the sauce. It's the sauce. Come on. Well, no, it's everything. They got a lot of great stuff. Okay, no food. No food. Uh, what other fu? This highlighted one. Launch kit. Oh, okay. Launch kit. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah, so uh, last week I, I mentioned that I had thought that Apple or someone had gotten involved with LaunchKit, and it, and it turned out my memory was close, but no, but no cigar. It was basically Google and LaunchKit are getting together to provide uh, resources for both Android and for iOS. So that was the there's a follow up article I'll put in the show notes about that. So and that's uh, using uh, and I've used their LaunchKit's tools before to to do that. So and that may may or may not be the impetus behind what Apple's doing. Who knows? Thoughts? No, not really. No. Well, like I did, I did recall, and I, I thought I asked if you guys had heard something similar. You hadn't, so no, I, I hadn't heard anything about the the LaunchKit team moving. So this is good to know because I think you know fair number of people used it. Um, I don't think what Apple did was necessarily a reaction to that. It seems like the um, and I'm referencing the um, you know the, the nice thing that you can do with the screenshots. I think we mentioned this on the the last episode that it's so much easier if you don't want custom screenshots for each platform you can just kind of let them resize it and do whatever um i think it's more a factor of apple like rededicating itself to developer tools and the app store itself um such as the the two-day review time as an example right they're they're starting to iterate on that a whole lot more than just once every 24 sorry once every 12 months yeah and and it's also helpful because it is painful to create as many screens as you have to for the various devices as we as we had to in the past and especially when since then, the iPad Pro came in um, with the you know twelve point nine inch screen, that was a challenging screenshot to make as well. So for a lot of people, yeah. Ever since the six and the six S, sorry, the six and the six plus came out a couple of years ago, the the number of screenshots just exploded, yeah, mushroomed. Yeah, yeah. So so maybe Apple's been talking about this all along. They recognize the problem, and it just took a little while to get out. Timing may not mean it mean anything. Yeah, and conversely, what you do with LaunchKit is you send them one image, and they they apply it to the various different sizes and give you and, and make it look like it's on the device, if that's what you want, right? So, excellent. You've got yet more follow up. Yes. Well, so we Iconic saw Stranger we, Things post. Yeah, we saw a uh, we saw a um, a comment uh, from you about the soundtrack from Stranger Things, which um, keeping you know in our musical theme in this podcast. Um, you can't see the smirk on my face, but I can uh, hear it. Yeah, the um, I w- it, uh, when I was reading the article about, uh, I was trying to find out what Stranger Things was, and it turns out it's a Netflix series, I believe, right? Um, and they've got this, what they call iconic poster, and um, what caught my attention was the fact that it had started, the artist started working on it on the iPad Pro with an Apple Pencil, and then eventually moved to Photoshop for more layering effects, and very similar to what I actually do when I'm, when I'm doing, uh, you know, drawings and things like that, or even screenshots for uh, the podcast. So interesting uh, 
piece of work if you're a digital artist and you want to read it on how the guy created the uh, this poster. And it is very similar to a lot of uh, scary movie posters back from back in the day in the 70s and 80s. Right. For it's those of show. you driving at home, um, it's it's an illustration, as Tim mentioned, is that that 80s style. And it's notable that that it was, you know, at least to begin its life on the, the iPad Pro. And uh, I listened to your guys' conversation about the uh, Surface commercial, uh, the Surface versus uh, Surface Pro, rather, versus the uh, the iPad Pro commercial. And um, I actually think that this sort of thing would have been much better to put in Apple's commercial, right? Like, I think uh, for all the snarkiness that was in Microsoft's commercial, um, they they sold their points. They said, hey, you know, this is why our product is better than the competitors in a very direct sort of way. And I think a few episodes ago when we talked about Apple's uh, iPad Pro commercial, I made the statement that if you close your eyes, it sounds like they could be talking about the Surface Pro, right? It doesn't distinguish itself in any way. That's right. But this this could have, right? And hopefully they take advantage of this sort of thing to say, hey, look, this is a really high quality artist's level tool. Um, I know that there are some artists that do stuff on uh, things like the surface pro, but I don't think it's digitizer and an pen system is quite as sophisticated as the uh, iPad pro. So I think that would be a plus that they should bring up. That does seem to be the consensus. Yeah. And actually he talks about the fact that he went to a Wacom tablet, which a lot of artists that I talk to compare the iPad pro to the Wacom tablet, you know, or the Cintiq, which is actually a monitor that you can draw onto um, very similar kind of experiences. So. Right. And I also highly recommend people watching Stranger Things on Netflix if you haven't already. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't started yet. I actually, I actually watched the whole thing after we talked about it last week because I had really hadn't heard of it in, until we talked about it. So uh, I, I don't remember it. talking so, about it's only, it. Well, no, I think we talked about it in the after show or something like that. Oh. Uh, but it was only eight episodes long, so it's actually a fairly quick uh, binge watch if you want to watch it. Oh, there you go. Okay, yeah. cool. You've got one more FU, I think, and then we can clear oh, this no. FU away. Uh, iPhone 6S laps the latest Samsung Galaxy Note 7. Yeah, no, obviously written by a non-Apple fanboy because his his headline says, you know, uh, Galaxy Note 7 versus iPhone 6S speed test in a race that nobody cares about anymore. But what's And he's right, we don't care. But what's interesting about it is that um, having watched the little video where they do compare the, uh, the various... Um, devices, some of them from Samsung, some of them from like Nexus and, and uh, now the Galaxy Note 7, is they've got this really sort of weird test where they have a whole series of uh, apps on the home screen and they, they tap them one after the other, um, you know, tap it, launch it, go to the next one, tap, launch it, and so on and so forth. And they're comparing an Android to an, IO, an iOS device. But um, what's interesting to note is that the iPhone uh, 6s laps the uh, Galaxy 7 in terms of like how many apps you can open at the same time, which is Again, I don't know why we're even comparing that, but it's just interesting to see that that maybe it's the Apple hardware tuned in with their software or or whatever, or the speed of the iPhone success or the or the chipset that we've talked about in the past being optimized and you know tuned for working with iOS. Tim, um, Tim, why do you say we don't care? Uh, you know, granted, this this test is a little bit hokey because they're yeah. they're just doing something that no one would ever do in their life, but it does demonstrate that. The uh, the user experience is better on, on on the iOS device just because if things are are happening a little bit more more quickly and more pep, you know peppier, 
uh, that's a that's a that's a good thing, and that's. that's I agree, and that's. I was kind of sort of pulling pulling at you to try and jump in here on on the whole uh, chipset thing, you know, because we've uh, talked about that for a number of weeks now, and in terms of the ARM chip and how they're designed and you know and tuned and that kind of thing, right? So, and right, you know, yeah. it's always been an argument on our side of the fence that you know, well, even back in the in the Mac versus PC days, that you know, Apple makes the hardware and they make the software, therefore they know more about, you know, how to optimize things. And one interesting yeah. thing about this is that in, in this article is he talks about the fact that, and, and it may be, you can, you can back this up or not, but he talks about the fact the iPhone 6S only uses two gigs of RAM, whereas the other devices need four gigs of RAM or three to four gigs of RAM to accomplish similar kind of feats, right? So mm-hmm. another example of optimization, right? Yeah, I, I do agree that, that uh, speed specs aren't so useful anymore. Saying something is two gigahertz versus two and a half gigahertz, you know, clock speed or whatever, is, is kind of not really the whole story anymore like it, like it used to be. Uh, but, um, yeah, I agree. It is, it's, it's more about how, how the operating system is tuned to work with the given hardware and, and how much you can squeeze out of it. And a lot of that is the fact that Apple is doing both, right? They're doing both the hardware and the, the software, uh, in the same way that that we talked about last time, Intel was able to squeeze more performance out of their their microprocessors because they controlled both the hardware and the software uh, on the chip level. Uh, unlike some someone who's running on a on a foundry process where you don't have really any control or or very little control, very limited control over over the hardware, and you have to write your software for the hardware. Yeah, and I and I can say that like you know I don't know what's like where in where you are, Mark, or where Jaime is, but uh, you know, it, where I, when I'm at work, there basically are, you know, any number of uh, Android developers will use Macs and they'll use iPhones. And then there's uh, Mac developers who use Androids. And there's, you know, a whole bunch of other people that support the whole applica- or application development process, you know, like uh, project managers and what have you. And it's a mix and mash of, of iOS and Android devices that I see all the time. And, and these days, it really doesn't seem to make a huge difference. I mean, they look nice. The the hardware looks nice. It seems to be performant. People aren't complaining about having to wait for things to happen. And there's no there's no sort of uh, uh, camp. You know, there's no separation of camps, if you will. Like it's a kind of a blurred line now between whether someone uses an iPhone or or an Android device, you know, or a Mac for Android development, for instance. Right. In fact, we use the Macs because they seem to be better at filing. But that's beside the point. Okay, is that the FU then? I believe it is. Let's get to the show. Uh, One of the big topics of conversation this past week has been around uh, Vesper, the note-taking app from QBranch, the collaboration between John Gruber, Brent Simmons, and Dave Wiskus. Uh, A few years ago, they launched this app to some great deal of attention, uh, if not success, as it turns out, as they have this week announced that they are shutting it down. Uh, the two, I got two links in the notes here about this. Uh, the first is the official announcement, if you want, or at least the first one that we saw from Brent Simmons' blog in Essential.com, uh, wherein he, uh, as the developer, kind of uh, approaches the topic of how and why they shut down. And um, and then more recently, we had John Gruber publish a piece. Um, I guess it was all on the same day. But, you know, things move fast on the internet, man. <laughs> and on the same day... Oh, no, these are month posts. Never mind. Never mind. It was definitely more recent that uh, John published his. Uh, He went through in much more detail about the reasons uh, why they shut down Vesper. Now, this is really interesting uh, because, of course, it is the the tail 
of an indie developer, right, uh, failing. <laughs> and uh, we, we spoke in the past about, well, you know, why, why aren't stories of failure being told more often? And they do get told. They're just not as often as the success stories because, again, like I said before, they, uh, people don't like to talk about failure. But it's super important, right? And that was my take on why last week, uh, if you listen to the after show and last week's show where I talked about shutting down Magpie, uh, to much less acclaim, I'll add, and attention, that uh, that you can kind of go through your reasons for doing something and, and learn some important lessons. Um, in the case of Vesper, uh, it really came down to what they felt was a, was a poor approach to the market. They started with an iPhone app, and without having sync being available, a lot of people couldn't take advantage of it in a way that made sense for them. You uh, know, in, in a way that once you have a a sync service and a Mac client and an iPad version, then you can truly have your notes everywhere. And uh, at the same time, Apple seriously improved their own notes product uh, with iOS nine. Am I remembering that right? Nine. That's right. When, yeah. yeah, when notes became sort of a much more robust product and notably uh, became dependent upon iCloud as opposed to IMAP mailboxes, which was just the worst. So uh, note that you write on one platform is always on the other. So um, Vesper never offered that. Vesper never came out with the Mac version. And, you know, that was like a, a crucial failing. And they, they truly believe that if they'd come out with the Mac version first, that history might have been totally different. And, uh, you know, I think there's definitely something to that. But one thing that you know, there's been a lot of talk about this app on the interwebs this week. And one thing that nobody is really talking about that I feel is the true reason that Vesper didn't succeed uh, is that it's another notes app in a very crowded marketplace. There, there are many ways yeah. that you can hire an app to be your note taking solution. Um, you know, and just even leaving aside notes from Apple, uh, there are many apps that do this. And as a user of Vesper from the start, um, you know, I was an interested party, of course, so I tried it out. It has its particular look and feel, but in terms of feature set, it doesn't seem to offer anything that was distinct or unusual. And um, I, I can't help but think that, um, that that is kind of why it doesn't succeed, right? Um, and it's just peculiar to me that nobody's really talking about that. Um, yeah. To me, like that's that's why you know it didn't make any money. Like even even had they come out with a Mac version, iPad version, iPhone version, Sync service, all of those products together, if they had done that even on day one. Um, I'm still kind of certain that uh, Notes would have come along and eaten its lunch. And I'm kind of wondering. I'm a little skeptical about whether starting on the Mac platform would have been any better because if you remember where the Mac App Store has been. For the last couple of years, it's kind of almost like a losing proposition in a lot of cases to put a lot of energy there, right? Well, I mean, don't uh, conflate being on the Mac with. Well, going no, I, in the I app mean, store. I mean, from the point of view of, I was going to say, from the point of view of building a, a Note app, because, like you said, I mean, I since day one have been using the Apple Note apps on on my devices. I have looked for apps that that did um, you know handwriting type things like Penultimate, and uh, there's another one I can't remember right now that. Uh, I've tried out because, you know, I tend to write, tend to like to write cursively as opposed to typing all the time. And, um, you know, now that the, now that the, the, uh, the iPad pro, uh, and the, you know, with pencil and the, uh, notes app has the sketchability in there, you know, now, now yesterday I was at a seminar and I was, you know, happily typing away on my Mac. And then all of a sudden there was a chart on the wall that I wanted to, or in the slide deck that I wanted to capture and so i pulled up my ipad pro and opened up the notes feature turned on the drawing thing and then drew the the chart right 
Um, and that's, you know, so there's a lot of functionality, as you said, been put into Apple's Apple's app. And they tend to, you know, people tend to go with the, the platform note-taking app if, if they have a choice. So it's kind of, it's, it's a tough thing. Like you also said that it's tough for any app in, in the productivity space to make any money, you know, because that's kind of a, people really are looking for a tool when they go to that particular category, right? Unless it's being featured or what have you at the time you discover it, right? Yeah. And I think uh, I'm going to sound very weird if people are skipping through this episode, because I'm going to take positions in two different situations that seem like they are contrary or contradictory to each other, peeking ahead for some of the stuff we're going to be talking about. Uh, in, in this case, I, I think when I look at it, it, it it really comes simply down to not Mac versus iOS. I think, you know, given the time that that came out, that, that has some play into it. But I think it's simply, it wasn't a good market fit because you had a competitor in uh, Evernote, right? Because Apple's notes didn't come until much later, right? These guys launched when iOS 6 was the hotness and 7 was just about to come out. Um, so they, they had two years of, of, of relatively free reign from not being impacted by Apple. Um, they designed a, a product that was, you know, really, really nice, you know, uh, nice to use, very pleasant to look at uh, in contrast to like, you know, Evernote, uh, which is the big competitor in this space that is kind of, okay it's clunky you know it gets the job done but the job that it gets done is done on every platform and not just on every platform but your you know that this is available your data is available on all those platforms because it has sync so i think the the problem wasn't necessarily well it was five dollars in an area that you know people were looking for freemium or looking for free i think it's like well it was a very late competitor that didn't do enough like there were some people that wanted a, a, a much more pleasant experience, right? Uh, uh, let's say, you know, like if you wear you know, a T-shirt from Walmart or a same T-shirt, but this time it's got a Nike logo on it, there's no functional difference there. But you feel nicer for what you know for whatever reason, right? And that's a, a valuable thing that's, that's really hard to be tangible. But in this case, it was just like not functionally competitive. And I think had they come out from day one with sync, even if it's, by building on somebody else's platform, like uh, something a little bit more uh, involved, like building on Parse or heck, even just Dropbox syncing of files, which uh, tons of to-do apps and notes apps do uh, is sort of a, hey, use your Dropbox and it'll be there. Um, if our app goes away, well, your files are still there in Dropbox. That I think would have helped their their market position. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good first step, you know, but that was a compromise they weren't willing to make. Like they saw that as a compromise, I suppose, and weren't willing to do that, right. which is really unfortunate. And it's a Mark, bummer. Did you have any? Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't have any strong opinions on this, to be honest. I mean, apps fail all the time. Um, but um, yeah, I, I tend to agree with Jaime that, that it, it was a market issue. I mean, what, you know, what makes you think or make, makes anyone think that there's a market for a note-taking app beyond what you get for free? Apparently, there really wasn't much of one, right, or enough of one. Let's say that's true. And even Evernote has started charging for syncing capabilities now. You can, you can get two devices for free, but and you know, I'm I, I sort of switched over to Evernote for a while because, as Aaron said earlier, mailbox syncing on on Notes app was a disaster. I would lose things constantly, and the only consistent place I could put things were it seemed was Evernote, right? And then you know, recently they've they realize that the the there's no market for this kind of tool without or this kind of service without having a a, a charge for it you know like a, for a subscription fee right it's a tough tough uh, market to be in 
Yeah, the the thing that's kind of out there that's uh, like an, an opinion, you know, there are many opinions floating around about this. A dominant one is the idea that, well, if these guys can't make it, then what hope yeah, do we have, right? Exactly, yeah. And, um, you know, I'm familiar with those feelings. Oh, my God, you know I am, right? <laughs> On the other hand, um, you know, as I said at the start of this, they, they uh, have had all kinds of reasons that they failed here. Uh, and I think having the wrong product is top of the list. You know, they never made the compelling case for why I should use this as opposed to um, any one of a number of different products. So uh, that's it. And, uh, you know, I I would love to see them work on something else. I know that's not actually going to happen because Brent has already said that, uh, you know, with his day job at Omni Group and his his plans to build one or two other of his own apps, uh, there won't be another app from QBranch, it seems. So that is that. Um, I wanted actually to kind of go from this topic right into another one that uh, kind of came up for me tonight, because the idea of having an app that can take notes, uh, while not particularly novel, is almost like too easy in a way, right? And a lot of people, myself included, and also uh, Apple evangelist, is he still an evangelist? Dave DeLong? I believe so, yeah. Um you know, have been thinking about, um, you know, a particular type of app that um, allows you to sort of build your own knowledge base. And that is something much more than a note-taking app. And so it is kind of a coincidence, an interesting one, that on the same day as we're going to be talking about Vesper going away, that Dave DeLong, maybe inspired by this, uh, has published a piece uh, describing the sort of app that he would love to have and it echoes a lot of thoughts that I've been sort of tinkering with over the years, and I mean years. And it's, it's essentially like a wiki app, um, you know, and if uh, you want to understand what that is, it's basically like if you know Wikipedia, that's like the best example of a wiki app. But it's a type of app that allows you to write articles that sort of very freely link to each other in a, in a hypertext sort of way so that you can uh, keep your own knowledge base uh, in a very fluid way by typing links that automatically create the linked documents. So um, what David's talking about here is essentially like an app that has the ability to quickly capture text, to tag automatically, uh, so you can um, very quickly organize your documents. Although the storage is flat, you can have like playlist sort of style organization of your documents uh, similar to how iTunes works, like smart folders. Linking between articles and pieces of, t of text are, is automatic. It pulls from the web, allows attachments, uh, can let you share uh, like collaboratively, like similar to Google Docs, and allows publishing of selected content uh, as web pages. All of this together is what it actually really reminds me of is an app that doesn't exist anymore for the Mac called Yojimbo. And it was from uh, Barebone Software. Do you guys remember that app? I do remember the app, yeah. Uh, that was a, a fairly popular app that sort of dwindled like they just stopped maintaining it. And the the sense of what it was is basically kind of like um, a, a shoebox for all of your information. Okay. Um, so that you'd have, you know, like I, I want to collect bookmarks uh, from web pages. And so, like, you just have like a category of bookmarks. You just throw bookmarks in there. Um, notes, just throw them in there. Contacts, throw them in there. And it's like, 
just stuff everything in and it sort of self-organizes. Um, but it hasn't existed for a long time. And if you're the sort of person that wants to sort of collect documents and organize yourself, um, there, there should be an app. And this, and this is primarily a Mac app uh, on first blush at least, but of course it would obviously expand to iOS at some point. Um, then you really do need sort of an, an app that can uh, take in everything that you've got in all the disparate parts of your digital life and put it all together in a single place. That is a dream app, <laughs> and it goes way beyond just note-taking. And obviously, like by the same token, it's enormously complex. But uh, this link to Dave DeLong's piece is in the show notes, and I invite you to read it if you're looking for something, or an idea at least, of what constitutes an app that is much more than just a note-taking app, which of which there are 38,000 of them on the store. Yeah, I, th- well, I think it also depends Not on even how, kidding. It depends on how you want to, uh, or if you're the type of person who really wants to organize yourself like that. I mean, I, I do capture thoughts, and I use my phone a lot, like, you know, take pictures of things just, just to remember them, or, or uh, jot, if, somebody, if I'm in a seminar or something, somebody says something that I want to remember about let's say a concept or, or, or theory or whatever, I'll write it down in, in my notes app. But at, at the, the big megacorp, we use Confluence for this kind of thing too, where, where we have to create requirements documents or just even places to sort of store information that other people can then quickly look up. And that's the same idea. I, n- I never really did get the whole Wikipedia or Wiki idea. Apple used to push it a lot when they were selling their server software, and they still do. I think it still has a feature in there, but it's meant for more enterprise-y kind of places where you have lots of information that, that needs to be put somewhere that other people can access. And that's, you know, the whole, the whole idea behind confidence. I don't know if Jaime has used something like that in his work life or Mark has. Or... Mm-hmm. It's funny that you, you bring that up because when I looked at the, um, the feature list here, uh, the vast majority of this is already available in Confluence, which is, you know, if you serve it on your own server, you can get a personal copy for $10 one-time fee. About the only thing that isn't really that great of a fit is the, like, casual tossing in of the machine learning aspect, which I think is, um, you don't just sprinkle in machine learning, right? Like, that's a very serious feature. Um, so I, I think I would back up a little bit and say, like, okay, it, there isn't, like, an app idea here. There's, like, a feature list. What I didn't get is the, why would I want this? Why would anyone want this, right? Like, like what's what's the market for this? Because this sounds like a fantastic idea for, like, one person here, and in this case, the author. And maybe maybe they should build it or cobble it together from, from what they want. Um, I'd like to see some more follow-up on this. So like, why, why should this exist? What do people want from it? Not to be, like, callous about it, but just, like, I, I think this suffers from the, hey, there's all these cool things that can be done, cobble it together or, or assemble it together and say, oh, there's an app. So, okay, well, sure, but that's that's not necessarily, like, a, a, a business or something that people will feel, like, really interested in, right? Uh, like, for example, I would have quibbles with, like, oh, it should use CloudKit. Like, really? Why? But yeah, that, 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 that kills the, the cross-platform piece uh, or at least makes it much more difficult to do um than you would if it was something else, even just Dropbox, like we mentioned before. That ticks, it ticks one of my boxes or it unticks one of my boxes from the after show last week when I was talking about what, what I consider the four things that I have to tick to make an app worthwhile pursuing uh, from the after show last week. It, it cannot be to just everybody, right? And, some, and an app like this, like what Dave's described, is for anyone. 
right? Like anyone can use it. It's it's not targeting a particular niche. And that's that's sort of the value proposition that it's lacking, right? It's features, it's not, you know, you you are a lawyer and you need this software to uh to organize your your notes and cases, etc. Where that if that were the angle, then it would be a much more viable idea. Similar to Aaron's idea of of having the four pillars or the things that that uh, check off is is um, one of the tools I use is called an opportunity filter, and I use it for business decisions too as well. Um, and it basically does you know like it has criteria like does it does it advance your your skill or knowledge does it does it create references for you for other opportunities to come up later does it in um, make you money or is it, or does it is there something about it that that's um, valuable to it? It has a value proposition not not necessarily money maybe it's a goodwill kind of exercise um, and there's a couple of others I can't remember but and you use this to sort of weight out what um, you like on, on a scale from minus one to five in terms of minus one that certainly doesn't to five where it, yes it totally does and then you add this up and then you have a you have a total a sum total that's a minimum uh, you know based on the sum total it's a, if it's meets a certain number let's say 14 if it or is your number if it gets higher than 14 then yes it's something you should pursue if it's a low number then maybe you shouldn't con- you consider other than just having a cut and dried binary yes no to the four boxes it's sort of a rather than having you know create a, a value to each one of those boxes do you have a source for this? Yeah, it's, I'm just looking for it now, and I'll, I'll find it while we continue talking here. It's, cool. it's called the Opportunity Filter, but uh, I, I thought I had a screenshot of it or, or a photo of it or something, but I'll dig it up. I've exhausted this topic. I'm, I am done. You're, you're spent? Well, on, on this topic, I am. <laughs> uh, right. Shall we move on to talk Certainly. about Google's new operating system? I think that is interesting. Um, so... In a nut here, shortly after we went live, because I, I seem to think this was published last week, the 19th, last Friday. So we saw an article in Fast Company last week about Google's newest operating system. And I guess Google being Google, there's uh, you know small teams that just do whatever the heck they want. And this team produced something called Fuchsia. And it's not, it's not done yet. It's a work in progress. The idea about it, though, is that it's written from the ground up. It has no preconceptions about what an operating system ought to look like it is not a a new form of unix or linux or whatever you have it is entirely new and the point of it is apparently to run on hardware as diverse as uh, tiny microcontrollers all the way up to server farms and i i can't tell you from reading this article what their end game is for this in fact, it seems quite likely that they don't have one, that it, they just are trying something for the heck of it. Because when Google hires a bunch of incredibly smart and well-credentialed people, they are bound to do things like this. So uh, did you guys have a look at this article? Yeah, I took a look at that. And basically, there's 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 no information there. I mean, this is, yeah, there may be something here. There may not be something here. No idea. Yeah, I, I think you're right that it was probably a side project that some people did. And they built this thing, and uh, possibly it was a, uh, it was partially envisioned as a as a hedge against uh, the the Java uh, Android issues, maybe or something something like that. I, I don't know, uh, or maybe it was just someone's, you know, someone's you know crazy idea. Let's try it, see what happens. No idea beyond that whether it's actually anything, whether it's a thing or not. 
I kind of take the position that, that in the in article quoting there, I'm not sure why they really need to be writing kernels, because kernels have been around for a long time. Um, in the case of the one that they talk about with iOS and, and macOS is based on BSD Unix going back way back when. Um, it's such a low-level thing. I don't know, maybe Mark can throw an opinion at this, but I don't see why we really need to sort this out again. Yeah, beyond the you know the 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 constant need to improve things, uh, I, don't, I don't really see any reason either. I mean, <laughs> there there may yeah they may be they may be they may come up with something that that uh, that revolutionizes the way everything works, and you know kind of the only way you, you find out whether they came up with something is by trying is them trying it. I read this and I'm like. I have the same reaction as as the the title of the article. Why on earth is Google building a new operating system from scratch? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I guess we might find out in the future. Who knows? Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Let's see here. Uh, we could talk about Instapaper. Yeah, that sounds like a good one. A a frequent favorite from uh, at least on my part. <laughs> I wrote this uh, down in the notes here. Instapaper acquired by Pinterest, and then Tim wrote later what? <laughs> Just typed after it. Seriously? <laughs> yes, I did. Does it seem incredible to you, I guess? It's just interesting, yeah, I guess. Well, okay, so a little back background on this. Uh, Instapaper is was the first read-it-later service when the iPhone was new, written by Marco Arment. And sometime later, years later, years later, after uh, some years of development, he sold it to a company called Betaworks. They're based in New York City. And they continued development for a few years and introduced some new features, including a developer service where you could subscribe to their... See, I've got to remember what the name of it is. He's going to mention it here. Instaparser. Instaparser was this uh, developer service that allowed you as a developer to uh, to get the same results from any web page that Instapaper does, like pulling the main content, essentially. I don't get the sense that that worked out too well for them because uh, that's the last thing they did before this sale to Pinterest. And you can imagine the kind of, sorry for this word, synergy um, in taking place between something like a, an Instapaper and Pinterest. That's true, yeah. Um, because Pinterest's role really is take content that you see on the web and, you know, box it up for your Pinterest page, you know, put it in this little this little art gallery of you, yours that uh, that other people can then look at. And Instapaper is like the text version of that. Like everything on Pinterest is generally just photographs or maybe videos. Uh, I'm actually not a huge Pinterest user, but... And so Instapaper is sort of the text extension of that for articles, right? So people could presumably use this to uh, to box up their articles that they're interested in to share on their Pinterest wall, page, whatever you call it. So it makes sense. I can see how that would work out. And for Betaworks, I imagine there was a, a tidy little payday for them and uh, probably a, a decent return on the investment they made uh, buying it from Marco in the first place. Well, I think, I think it, there was a sort of side story, too, that I believe they're, they're moving the team from New York City to San Francisco as well. Oh. Yeah. That was, that's, so I, I, I saw this. Yes, um, yes, that's right. I saw this article. I think tw- Jaime tweeted about it a couple of days ago. I saw it in uh, you know Twitter, what happened while you were away thing. And then I saw your link about it. And then, um, but I was ta- I was chatting with a, a friend of mine from Texas today about the fact that he told me that they're moving the whole team. So, and again, that's that whole displacing the the team and what about the extended families and all that kind of stuff. Right? It's a tough thing to move sometimes, right? 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, and you're right. It says it right here in this article that we've linked to that uh, that they are moving to San Fran. Uh, risky Frisky. <laughs> will uh, continue development there. So as a user of Instapaper, uh, my, my position is uh, I'm not alarmed yet. But, you know, it's possible that I'll be moving to some other service if, if Pinterest does something hmm. yucky. So so uh, so just so I understand, I don't use Instapaper myself, but does it actually take the HTML and, and stick it aside so you can use it later? Or does it sort of link the the stuff in like it can you read it offline that kind of stuff or is it how does how does it work what's the deal behind it instapaper parses the content from the page uh so at the moment that you save it it scrapes the page and pulls the article from it oh so like the read only kind of or reader reader version of it if you will the reader version of it yeah well they were the first ones to come up with the idea of a reader version right right now apple's using it in safari and that kind of yeah that's right right. yeah and and a number of other competitors in the market and this is why marco wanted to sell it in the first place i think he was he was getting sick of having all these dogs on his tail chasing after him and implementing all his features uh, now he's enjoying the same thing with Overcast, which is hilarious. I mean, in a terrible way, obviously. I mean, you know, did you see actually, like, we never actually talked about this when uh, we talked about Castro and what's the one that Greg likes? Pocket Casts. Pocket Casts, yes. Mm-hmm. They both came out with updates in the last few weeks, right, that we talked about on the show. And the both of them came out with um, an implementation of Overcast, Marco's podcast players signature feature um the strip silences right the what what marco calls smart speed um has now been replicated by castro and pocket Cast, if i'm understanding right um and so that the same thing that marco dealt with with instapaper uh is now happening once a more and i don't know how he feels about it <laughs> but uh, i know that i would feel like can i just get a break here <laughs> <laughs> right Anyway, so that's Instapaper. So I'm going to take a uh, contradictory opinion that I did, what, 20 minutes ago, real time. I don't know if that'll be 20 minutes showtime. So uh, this is like the counterexample of, you know, maybe it's not a good idea to build on somebody else's platform, right? So uh, whatever apps may have built on Instaparser, uh, let's see, this is August. They're getting three months to do something uh, to to migrate things over. So it's... uh, it can be dangerous. And I think that's a, a repeating theme that we have here. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, uh, it, I think it depends on what you're trying to do, right? Like it, maybe it would be worth your, your time if it was like, wow, this looks pretty solid. It's going to stay around for a long time uh, or at least long enough for things to matter. Right. We've talked about, you know, getting to market, you know, reasonably fast so that way you can see, like, Hey, is, is this really going to be something that I have to worry about? Um, Maybe folks feel that way with Instaparser. I don't. I don't feel like it was around that long. Was it six yeah, months? Six months yeah, ago even, yeah. that we talked about it first. Like that's maybe, maybe. That yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just get the sense that uh, it, it probably was not adopted very heavily. Well, other than the show, I really hadn't heard much about it. Yeah, and I don't know of any apps that uh, added that feature. Yeah, I think it might be kind of tough because there already are apps that do that sort of thing, like Pocket and. Yeah, whatever yeah. the other ten other competitors are uh, in this <laughs> in this space. Looking at this, like I don't know what this necessarily means for Instapaper users, but given that they're moving the team, like the the app is dead. It's just a question of is it within the next three months, six months, or like typical one year for this acquisition. That's what I would keep my eye on. Start uh, start thinking of migration. 
Yeah, typically aqua hires like this happen when the acquired team uh, is is uh, having some financial difficulties. I mean, not every time, not in every case, but but more, I think more often than not, uh, you, you know, you don't sell out unless you kind of need to. Uh, so, so my guess is that uh, Pinterest saw an opportunity to pick up a solid team, uh, whether or not they actually use the product or the IP for anything in the future, who knows. But there must mm-hmm. be some interest there for them to pay for it, though. Well, they get to hire the team. Oh, I see. Right. Oh, so it may be, it may be, yeah, maybe their team is what they're hiring, right? Right, as opposed to the product, right? Who knows, though? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, I don't know about that one. All right. We'll see, though. You know, we're going to find out. Well, if they're willing to pay to move the team to San Francisco, which is not a cheap thing, no, then it shows that there's interest in the team. Sure, and, they, and we've talked about this before, but is the cost of living in New York City and and um, or that in the environs similar to San, uh, the the Valley, Mark? Or well, I don't live in New York, so I don't really know. But but uh, it, it used to be that they were pretty comparable, I think. But from what I hear lately, it's it's more expensive here. I just saw an article today. Uh, that showed a, a chart of the uh, minimum salary, and these are, of course, these are these are very uh, hand woven, hand waving things. But the minimum salary required to buy the average house uh, in different cities, and in San Francisco, the the number was something like you know, hundred and actually, as I say it, it sounds low, but one hundred and twenty k or something like that. Whereas in New York, it was only like ninety k, which kind of surprised me. Maybe I well, find the that point. Article. The point was that the point being that San Francisco is much higher than than New York, which was kind of surprising to me. But uh, but actually living here maybe not so surprising. I think the point of that article was to say that in San Francisco you need a six figure income to buy a house. More than just a six figure, but well into six figures. Yeah. Which actually, is absolutely no, I read true. That about, which is absolutely I read true. A, yeah. yeah, I read that about Toronto actually. Uh, in the GTA, you need a six figure income to buy a house. But that's Canadian dollars. Um, <laughs> yeah. Looney, Five ninety nine US is that what we're talking about now? <laughs> yeah, we, we use Canadian tower money to buy houses up here. Yeah, here it is. I just found it. This is published on August twelfth. Buying a home in the GTA requires a six figure income. Wow. Few places are within reach for households earning less than a hundred thousand dollars. And that's not just uh, like Toronto proper, but uh, like all you know the GTA. Yeah, everything's is, going up. Yeah. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah. This will uh, will go to picks, huh? Because are we there? Are we there? We're there. Are we yeah, there? We're there. Are we there? We're there. Just checking. Let's go to picks. Checking. What's this touch of death? Great. Is that a pick mark? Oh no, that's not a pick. It's just a a uh, comment uh, that apparently this is this has been some pretty big news the last couple of days. Uh, there's a there's a bug that it uh, is not really a new bug from what I see, but but one that's been uh, pretty. Prominent uh, on the on the six and six plus devices, which granted are two year old devices, but it, it looks like there's a manufacturing defect where uh, the the flexing, the same flexing of the phones that was an issue back when the six plus first came out, is causing a problem with with uh, a couple of the chips pretty much popping out of their sockets on the on, wow. the, on, the, on the main board. Uh, and causing some real weird things to happen. You get this gray bar at the top of the screen, and then it's the the touch screen is just stops responding to touches, and it's a big problem. And, and it looks like Apple's not repairing it under the warranty, which is kind of kind of unfortunate. What? 
Yeah, yeah. So it's, like, you mean under Apple Care or just under? Well, you know, for a two-year-old phone, who has? Well, I guess maybe if you have Apple Care, maybe they will cover. It. But, but uh, in general, that seems like the kind of thing that you, know, you ought to be able to just bring your phone in and they replace it. But uh, even if it's not on, on warranty, but but I guess not. The it, the timing of it is kind of interesting that people are talking about this now, uh, given that the the technology is now two years old and there's about to be a new one. Right. But the the context of the article that I posted there was this may interfere with with iPhone seven sales because you know people are worried now about right, the quality right. of, of iPhones. I, I, I don't know that I buy that, uh, but it is an interesting thing. There's that yeah I hadn't heard about this one before, but. But it, they interviewed a couple of people in there that were quoted a couple of people that do repairs, and apparently it's a it's a pretty common problem. Seems like they're they're tying it to Bendgate. Yes, yeah. Well, yeah, because it's the flexing of the phone that causes the chip to pop out of the socket. Oh, but nobody's actually like, <laughs> people aren't actually bending their phones, right? <laughs> Come on, that well, was a joke then. It seems it doesn't seem like it's right, funny but anymore. but to but to cause something like this, you don't need to you don't necessarily need to have a noticeable curvature to the bend of the phone. It just it has to stress enough to make this chip just pop out. Hmm. Well, Mark recently had an issue with his his battery swelling, right? Which was I did. Causing, yeah, causing yeah. That was that was a real problem, and Apple fixed it, replaced it in that case. So I was very happy about that. But yeah, the the bat the battery apparently swells up to two or three times the the size and and pushes up on the screen. So so there was in my case there was a definite bowing of the screen uh, in the center of the phone, not at the edges, uh, and I mean enough that you could you know you could slip a piece of paper or something underneath the screen if you wanted to I and mean, it was it was pretty it was pretty strong uh and like i said the i just took it to the app store and they replaced it even though it's well out of warranty and i didn't have apple care on it wild well yeah. this is a very in-depth article too yeah i love that uh there's there's this micro soldering specialist named yeah. jessa jones she sounds like a superhero yeah, is she a yeah. superhero, do you think? Yeah, she was on Netflix, wasn't she? That yeah, would be Jessica Jess- Jones. Jessica Jones. <laughs> <laughs> also a good series that I recommend. Yeah. yeah. It's a good binge-watching one, for sure. Well, okay. back back yeah, when I was yeah. in the chip industry years ago, there were, there were people whose job it was to do wire bonding. And what that means is uh, in the old days with the old-style packages, they would just put the – the, these are the, uh, the what were called GIP packages, dual inline packages. You've seen them. It's a, it's it's a it's the one that has sort of the the wires coming perpendicular down the sides of the chips, and it looks sort of like a you know like a spider kind of that you plug into the socket. Well, with those, the way that you connect the actual chip to the package itself is with this thing called a wire bonder, where it's a it's just this tool that someone looks through a microscope and and uh, moves the this this tiny little wire uh, to the to the actual surface of the chip to a pad on the surface of the chip and does a little micro solder there and then routes it to the package and solders it down there and we're talking you know really really tiny distances you know like tens or hundreds of microns you know, really tiny stuff hmm. but there were people who were just the experts at this. Uh, and they they could just do a, a incredibly amazing things. You have to have a, a great vision and and uh, hand eye coordination just to to make the stuff work. Because if you if you slip or or if you cross the wires or or screw up at all, 
the chip is just dead. So, so it has to be perfect every single time. So she probably was one of those actually at one time. Yeah. I love that. That's where the term smoke testing comes from too. Right. If it starts smoking, then you did something wrong. Yeah. 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 To the picks. To the picks. All right. So Aaron, do you have a pick? I have a very simple pick this week. It is a comic little panel thing that's in a tweet that I saw today. Yes. And it's from the account of at Bork, Julia Evans, who is a developer of some kind, of some description, also takes a hand at cartooning. The title of the comic is How I Got Better at Debugging, and I'm going to leave it to you to read, and that is the conclusion of my pick. Except to say at the very end, there's this one great line, facial expression, determination. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love the whole thing, though, because it's uh, instructive and true. Right. So it sums up my feelings about debugging, uh, an activity that I, I quite enjoy from time to time. Yeah. Not not 100% of the time, but uh, a nice percentage of the time. I, I do enjoy finding and killing bugs that other developers write. Well, I, I seem to remember somebody saying in, uh, at one point, are, are we actually writing code or are we fixing bugs? Well, obviously, I, I know the dis- the difference between those two things. Yes. Um, I know when I'm writing code and I know when I'm fixing bugs. Yeah. Yeah. Those are different modes of operation. Yes, they are, but just seems to be that's where we're going okay um maybe what you meant to say was are you writing code or are you writing bugs <laughs> or, <laughs> or are you bugs. writing unit tests? well you never know because sometimes <laughs> even apple like you know introduces uh challenging things that we have to sort of figure out moving on um mr well let's start with mark mark do you have anything well that resembling a pick i guess that would have been it right yeah, I don't have a pick, but I'm still trying to find that article, so oh, okay. I'm looking for it. Oh, here it is. Here it is. I just found it. Huffington Post. Title is, The Cities Where a Six-Figure Income is Barely Enough to Get By. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. All right, Mr. Lopez, do you have any picks? I do. <laughs> the dump truck full of picks. Uh, beep, making beep, up for the, uh, the the lack of picks since I haven't been on the show in a couple weeks. Oh, that's um, true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I fully intended to last episode, but I was shaking my fist uh, on the road, realizing I was not going to make it home anywhere near in time for the recording. Um, In any case, uh, the first one here is KZ File Watchers by uh, Christoph uh, Zablocki, a iOS developer over at the New York Times. This is a tiny little framework in the form of a CocoaPod and, and others that you can install to do observing of local file changes and remote file changes um where i've found it kind of useful is is not in like production code i I wouldn't really use it for that but more for a okay well i want to sort of stub out what the um you know the back end api is going to be providing to us but we don't actually have an agreement as to what that's going to look like and by golly i sure would like to be able to see you know what this content would look like coming through especially when you know, messing around with the uh, auto layout and trying to make sure I'm doing the right things to make my, my UI resize itself appropriately. Uh, KZ File Watchers makes it pretty easy, especially for the example that they show um, running out of the simulator where, you know, it creates a little file on your desktop and you just go right into your favorite text editor, whatever that may be, and just start typing things in there and it will route its way to wherever. And in the example code that they give, they just pipe it straight out to... Um, can't remember if it was a text view or a UI label or something. In either case, you can you can see, and they have a nice little animated GIF here for those of you driving at home who will eventually look at the links, um, where they're just sort of typing, you know, uh, a 
paragraphs of text and it's showing right up in their UI. So I, I think it'd be pretty useful to use for that, you know, particularly if you've abstracted it away where, you know, API response goes here and you take that here and plug this in, at least for early fleshing out development. This is where I would recommend this. So do you know how they're doing it? Is it is it using some sockets or something, or is it how, how do they notify the phone that you've typed something? Do you know? Did you dig that far into it? I didn't dig um, into the code. I'm sure yeah. it could. It doesn't look there's like there's a ton of code here, but um, it looks like to me. It looks like the simulator. He's running a simulator here, but you think it's running to a phone per se? Oh, I don't know. Let's see. Well, it does remote stuff, so you can. You know, it, it does keep uh, e-tag checking and everything. Do, do, do. How is it notifying? How is it checking? Is it just constantly polling? URL sessions here. Uh, yeah, what's... Right, what's... But, but how do you tell the phone? Is it, I mean, maybe maybe there's a... There's no server component to it, right? It's just talking directly to the phone? Is that right? There's a local and a remote section here in his classes. Um Let me take a look at the example, because I've only, I've only actually used the uh, the local one. Yeah, there's an extension on uh, filewatcher.remote. And this is called by what? By what are you called? By time interval, he's polling. Hmm. Oh, he's just polling. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, every second. Once per second. Yeah, I haven't. I mean, I, I guess it's the sort of thing where, you know, you could throw something onto, like, Amazon S3 that would could represent the data that would be coming through, and you could have it be closer to being real. Uh, I haven't used it that far. I've used it just for more prototyping and, and figuring out what, what things are going to look like. Actually, maybe this is a good time to, to ask you folks. So, so part of the reason I ended up using this is like, I really don't like having to like stop and restart you know, the sim, <laughs> even the simulator as fast as it is. It's just painful. Like, oh man, I, I really want this element, this data element to be, you know, twice as big or you know, not have any line breaks in it and, and see what will happen to the UI. Um, I'm trying to remember if reveal lets you do that sort of thing. Um, yes, it, it'll allow you to edit elements in the app uh, so that you could change position and size, mm-hmm. and that'll affect what you see in a simulator and in you, real time. You can change content, like in this case, just change the, no. the content of a UI label to be twice as no. much. I don't think so. I mean, I've never done that. Yeah. Um, and I'm you trying talk to about think it in, in an app that's, that's currently running. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. The, the best yeah, analogy. So, Sorry? About a year or so ago, I think, maybe even a little longer than that, uh, I saw a couple of demos of exactly that from, I think Mixpanel might have been one of them, and one of the other analytics services, and who are doing a disservice now because I can't remember who they are. But it was actually pretty amazing. Uh, you had a cockpit on your, on your Mac, uh, and you could have the, the app running in real time, and basically just by pressing a button it would it would make a representation of whatever was on the screen at that time uh, on your phone or on the app and and let you edit it and it would edit in the app in real time as it was running it was pretty cool stuff uh and and this was the amazing thing is it was even without without uh putting any any extra customization into your app beyond dropping in their sdk so it must be swizzling like every view did load or something like that to put in a hook to uh, every you, every element in your in your in your layout and and uh, and being able to just uh, uh, change it in real time. I, mean, I, I you know I, I never dug into it enough to figure out how it worked, but it was pretty amazing. Uh, I can try to dig out a reference to that. Right, and I th- and I think uh, a similar one 
now that you've jogged my memory that I've used before is lean plum has a, a similar functionality where you, you connect up your, your device, like your actual uh, device that you're, you're going to be using. And then you can go into the little like visual editor and you can just mm-hmm. like click on stuff, change colors, change yeah, text exactly. and everything. Um, yeah. kind of weird, spooky, scary stuff, uh, fun stuff. Yeah. Cause you could do this, at least the one I saw, you could do this in production apps. It wasn't even the dev version. So you could do and the, the, the context they were posing it in was for doing real time AB testing. Right. Uh, if you, you know, if you think that making that button red instead of green will have a real effect, uh, you could try it <laughs> and just see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. In real time. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think where I was looking for, for a, a tool similar to this was thinking back to my web development days where you could just, you know, fire up the inspector and change whatever you want it live and not have to, you know, run the entire page again as, as, as easy as that was. Um, and although I have used things like, uh, like lean plum and presumably mixed panels, a uh, bit, um, yeah. it, it's good for singular elements, but not so great for, oh, what if, you know, I have a hundred rows and each of them yeah, are varying yeah, heights right. and everything that this right, kind right. of lends itself a little easier to do that programmatically, but, but uh-huh. I get the, the coolness of the other bit. Yeah. All right. So next pick. Actually, let me jump in with oh, a, sorry. a little bit uh, more quick, real time follow up. Uh, I found the actual article that I was talking about, not the previous one. And this one's titled. Here's how much money you need to buy to make to buy a home in 27 major cities, <laughs> and it shows a map of the U.S. and essentially the salary you need, to, according to this, the, that you need to to buy a home in that in those uh, cities, and it's even scarier than than what I was just saying. Uh, San Francisco is 161,947 dollars and sixty cents. New York City is 86,215 dollars forty four cents. Wow. Uh, if you are looking for a bargain, then move to Cleveland, according to this, where it's $34,433.95. Seattle is $82,673. Now, where these, these are, you know, median numbers and all that, so they're not necessarily... The fact that New York is half the price of San Francisco is pretty shocking. Yeah, it's pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah, but that's like, you know... The environs, not necessarily, say, Manhattan or something like that, right? That's right, yeah. In New York, I'm sure they're including Long Island and Westchester, maybe even all the way up to Albany, you know, for, for all we know, or New Jersey, too. Whereas here in the Bay Area, we're, we're limited by space. There's just there's nowhere to build because uh, we've got the ocean on one side, we've got the bay in the middle, we've got mountains on the other side, and there's and, and everything inside is, is pretty much full at this point, so... So that's one of the big reasons that housing is so crazy out here. It doesn't have Toronto on the list. The closest one, well, Cleveland is pretty close. Uh, Detroit is thirty-eight thousand. Yeah, which I is think- closer, Detroit or Chicago to you guys? Detroit, uh, right? Detroit, yeah. But yeah, not at all useful. No, I mean, no, yeah. of course, not. Of course <laughs> not. I, I would, I would, I would put Toronto like uh, higher than those two examples. Um, yeah, yeah, Vancouver, yeah. Vancouver would even be more because. Vancouver, you can get the th- a third of a Toronto house for the same money. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I will put this article in two minutes. Yeah, housing is a tough, tough uh, thing to talk about these days. Yeah, sure is. 
All right, Jaime, why don't you uh, bring us back down to earth with some uh, more picks? <laughs> right. My, uh, my second one this week is YouTube DL or YouTube download, YouTube down low, like keeping it on the down low, uh, perhaps. Ooh, hey. Um, it's a command line tool that you can use to download videos from YouTube and many, many, many other sites for legitimate reasons, hopefully, right? Like, I'm not going to encourage anybody to do anything crazy or dumb and do with it as you may. Um, where I find it kind of useful for, for me is, um, you know, think about if you're going to go on an airplane, like I will be relatively soon in a little bit less than a month, um, heading over to Nashville for indie dev stock. And, you know, the plane that I'm on may or may not have Wi-Fi, And even if it does, it may or not be able to handle streaming, right? Like I may not be able to stream like, Hey, here's this really cool video from, you know, like Facebook's developer group on our group developer group channel on YouTube or in one that I've been thinking about because it came to my mind is like 360 iDev. Um, the conference is going on right now, I think, as of this, yeah, it is, yeah. this recording. Uh, but they do have past videos. That, wow, I sure would love to like review some of those on my way, uh, you know, offline on my laptop while I'm in flight. So I'd say try to, it's pretty easy. It's just like tons of different ways. It's open source. You can contribute if you want. There are many contributors here. I'm not going to list them all. Um, 20 different ways that you can install this. I went with the homebrew one because it's super easy to do. And you just use it as, you know, YouTube-DL uh, is the command. And if you have auto-completion, you don't even have to type that much. And then the URL. Super easy. I tried it out. It, it maintains things in, like, really good quality. As far as I could tell, the, the same source quality as what you had. So there's no qualms about that. I love it. It's uh, really handy. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned YouTube DL in a past show because it is the uh, the, the foundation of Magpie. Um, which is dead now, so let's talk about it. <laughs> um, so what YouTube DL does, it's not just for YouTube. That's the first thing i got to say about it. It's um, Despite its name, it supports a huge variety of web-hosted video, um, which is why I opted to use it, because I wanted Magpie to be a polyglot client to any kind of web video. So um, one of the big things, uh, if, if you're browsing around that GitHub repo there, Jaime, you'll see me in the requests for a lot of different websites that Magpie customers have asked to support um, because uh, Magpie is, is YouTube DL underneath. So um, getting this video to download you know, is, is a simple thing on the command line, but it's also eminently scriptable, right? Because it is a command line client. And so my web service is basically running this in order to return information about videos, but also to download them uh, on, on the client side. And it basically uh, just has um, the URL for the original source video at any given time. So like, if you look at, like, say, YouTube, which is probably the most popular one, YouTube's Dot com the website is basically just a front-end player for a, a data store that has that video in a variety of formats so there's the original um, it would have been an mp4 file because when you upload to youtube it gets converted into an mp4 but then they do this processing task where they serve it up in a ton of different sizes and it can be like a dozen or more up to you know maybe 20 or more um, different formats depending on the device that's um, actually browsing the site at any given time. And so uh, if, you, if you look at the help for YouTube DL, you'll see that it offers you a ton of choices. Um, so you can, you can parse the video, and it'll return um, all the formats that are available 
to download at any given time. Um, and this varies by video, of course, because um, some of them are have, have a lower quality source to start with. And so it can't give you like a, uh, you know, like a an, an high def, ultra high def version. So you're stuck with like a 320 wide version because that's when the original one was. Uh, and things like that. And there's audio only sources and there's like streaming um, optimized sources. Um, it, it really does depend on the video. So there's a lot you can do with it. And yeah, like if you, if you just go to a web page and like, say there's a bunch of videos on it, like not just YouTube, but like any other web page, a bunch of embeds, and you can just take that URL, go to your terminal, YouTube dash DL and, uh, use quotes. That's a, that's a pro tip, <laughs> put quotes around the URL and then it'll actually just download them automatically. All the videos right to your, whatever directory you happen to be sitting in. So in the case of Magpie, were you actually downloading the, the file to the device or are you streaming no. it through AV no. Player? No, one of the options, um, there's a, a switch, uh, the J switch in YouTube DL. And what that does is just provide the info and it doesn't actually download anything. So uh, the J is for JSON and it passes back uh, a nice block of JSON with all of the uh, options for that given video. Oh, so like a thumbnail and, and title yeah, and yeah, length that's right. and stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. And, and one for, and it's a, an array. So if, um, there's multiple videos on the page, it'll pass back an array of JSON blocks. Uh, it's enormously powerful. Interesting. And right. you, were you playing with AV player? Like when, when the person wanted to watch the video first? Yeah. So you, you end up ultimately with, um, like I, in Magpie, I had like an HD and SD and a mobile, like a low, low res version. Uh, I had the URLs for those. And then uh, I would pass the URL to um, AV Player Controller, and it would take care of the rest. Right. Cool. Super straightforward. But uh, yeah, that's the gut of it. So Aaron, uh, Jaime's going to talk about Alexa. Do you want to go grab a beer while he does that? Oh, more Alexa. <laughs> I'm out of here, guys. See ya. <laughs> Before uh, you guys go do that, um, I did try using YouTube DL on uh, Apple's WWDC videos, and mm -hmm. it didn't seem mm -hmm. to work. And, and you would ask, well... You're a crazy person. There's like a download link right there. Why would you try it? Uh, the reason I tried it was for fun because I said, hmm, I kind of remember during WWDC this year where I don't know if I caught the page in like transition or something, but I could stream a video, but they hadn't yet made the resources available. Like after the fact, the, the, the event was not happening, right? This was middle of the night. So they clearly weren't actually doing the event. Uh, so I was hoping to see, oh, maybe I can be able to like download it offline earlier rather than waiting around for the uh, the page to get updated yeah alas uh it doesn't work for that and i think that's actually an outstanding issue not a huge deal i mean you could, there's there's like a script now that download every video for you all right jaime come on hit us with more and we want more pics we want more alexa right the the, the final one is for the amazon alexa. echo uh, are you sure you don't want to marry alexa <laughs> again a, a u.s only one uh that's the teasing for the uh Canadian folks on the podcast, but for those of you who are blessed, let's say, to have an Echo available, uh, and Listen if you want to develop, Ego. if you want to develop, I was going to say worthy, but I felt like that was kind of a douche move. Wow, sick burn, right? Um, uh, <laughs> so for those of you who have an Echo and want to do development for it, um, I'm just really impressed with how much this platform keeps improving, and the improvement to bring up today is the um, audio streaming for the Alexa Skills Kit. Uh, before you could do very limited audio and your know, little snippets, you know, 10 to 30 seconds, I think, 
Um, but nothing like being able to create a music player or a podcast player, you know, news stories, that sort of thing. Uh, and now you can. I'm not going to go too deep into the technical details here, but it's pretty straightforward if you've seen any of um, Amazon's developer blogs or like the aforementioned like uh, Flask Ask pick that I had uh, some time ago. Uh, pretty easy to pick up. From what I can tell, I kind of get you know the gist of what's happening here. I want to slightly burn Apple a bit. We're saying like, this is the sort of thing I would love to see with Siri Kit, right? Like I, I'm sure there are very good business reasons why they didn't make it available but like you look at what's here like yeah this is pretty easy like this would not be that hard to do um and i think it'd be great but in any case it's available for uh, echo developers so did you see that article that was published today uh in uh oh you know stephen levy's site uh back something uh, about about apple's ai work of late i don't think i saw that particular back article you're talking about so this is um uh, an exclusive interview that Stephen Levy, longtime uh, Apple columnist, um, is writing about uh, as an expose, really, on Apple's efforts at, in artificial intelligence and machine learning, right? And so he got into Apple. Uh, Eddie Q and Craig Federighi are there were sort of two of the leaders of um, machine learning at Apple. And it's a, a rather lengthy article about what they're doing and what more, more to the point, actually, what they've done to improve Siri and various things that are now starting to appear in iOS 10, right? So we know things like the differential privacy stuff, that's sort of the foundation of of Apple's sort of secretive approach to developing machine learning, Um, stuff like knowing where you're parked, um, pointing out, I don't know if you guys are running the beta on iOS, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, like when, when an appointment comes up, you look at your phone and it says like, hey, you're eight minutes away from the gym, you know, because I get that a lot. And things like that, that Apple's doing now. And I, I read this whole thing today, and uh, I wasn't going to bring it up in this show, except it's totally relevant for this this part here that you're talking about, Jaime. <laughs> <laughs> um, there wasn't a lot of new information in here. I don't, I don't think there was, like, any new information, except that we, we now have the date for when they, they installed, like, this new version of Siri back in 2014, and things improved by X percent. But aside from that... Uh, there's not a whole lot that they add to this except to say, you know, Apple's message to you, hey, guys, we're actually working on this. This is a thing that we're doing, machine learning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and to bring it back to code, there is now in the Accelerate framework, uh, there's a set of, of functions to evaluate neural networks, which is what this is all based on. Not to train the neural networks because that takes a, a lot more computing power. But once you have a trained neural network, you can actually put it into your app. And, and evaluate based on, on, on uh, whatever criteria to do things like this. Right. So check out the Accelerate framework. There was a talk about it at the uh, at, at WWC this year, I think. Yeah, and the, actually the other thing that I wanted to mention, uh, because the thing that, that you said, Jaime, just before I, it, this came back to my mind, was talking about you know why can Alexa offer these APIs and, um, and why, why isn't Siri uh, developer extensible at this point? Um, and that, that question actually is addressed in this article, and they get all offended because uh, Siri is much more flexible about the t- types of, of input that it can handle, right? Um, whereas Alexa is much more um, formulaic, like you have to say a very specific phrase to activate it. Uh, Siri can handle a lot of different intentions. Yeah, I can see why they would get offended because it, it, it actually is like really amazing what, what Siri can do to... to- 
parse things into the correct bits. And that's what they've stated. That is, you know, ostensibly why it's limited to six different uh, kinds of intents, right? Messaging, voice over IP, payments, ride booking, photo search, workouts. That's great. But I guess my take on it would be this is only going to move as fast as Apple can move it and is kind of akin yeah. to them you know, having never opened the iPhone to the App Store, right? It's like, oh, great. Well, Apple great, make, created this new, you know, installed app that does wonderful things. That's fantastic. Um, this other platform lets anybody extend it, right? And I'm, I'm somewhat cynical of the idea that, like, even for the ones that they chose, right? I think they chose some that, uh, or purposely did not choose some that would allow for some of their competitors to, to deal with things, right? Competitors in the surface space. So 30 second segue here towards, you know, uh, why for me, would I pick one service or another for uh, music streaming? So I had three free months of Spotify premium. I was like, wow, you know, it's good. It's okay. But you know what is really missing? It's missing what I had when I had the three free months of Apple music. And, and it wasn't using the Apple music app. I think if folks go back and listen to those old episodes of this podcast, I was really confused. Like, why is everybody having such a hard time with Apple music? You know, being confused as what's going, oh, that's because I only ever use Siri to activate it because I'm, you know, I'm usually driving when I'm using Apple music and I'm like, oh, you know, play me the top hits from 1975 or play me, you know, the, the top 40 uh, for this week. And when I'm looking at like, well, what do I want to do with music streaming going forward? I'm like, hmm, I kind of feel like Apple Music might be the way forward, even though, in my opinion, right, in my uh, sort of stuff that I listen to, I think that Spotify's system is superior in every way, except for the fact that I can't use voice to control it remotely, right? That's like a huge sticking point. So I'm, I'm... I have this is baseless speculation here, but I, I would guess that the reason they didn't choose the obvious choice of playing music and other bits is because it weakens their position while they're trying to fight Spotify. And in contrast to here, like Amazon doesn't care; they'll, they'll get your money no matter what. So, <laughs> you want to use Prime Music? You want to use Spotify? Man, Pandora? They don't care. They can come, come, everybody join. Interesting. Okay. Anything else you want to add about that, Jaime? I did actually have a question about um, about so why. Like I think you mentioned, you mentioned earlier about um, Apple's um, limited, I guess, um, access that we have with um, with Siri Kit uh, versus what seems to be happening with with Alexa. Um, notwithstanding the fact that it doesn't work out in the United States, um, do they have to support multiple languages? Let's say, or like I mean, that may be part of one of the limiting factors behind Siri Kit is that it has to understand so many different kinds of intentions from from people, and that may be why they decided to, you know, typical of Apple's. Uh, style they want to make sure they do the put their best foot forward every time right maybe that's why they limited what's happening with siri kit versus what you can do it seems with alexis that's possible um i guess a counter to that would be that siri um has always had latest and greatest features and even itself was only available in very select markets relative to what the iphone itself was available in so i'm not sure that that 100 holds true i'm sure it's a factor but i don't know that it's an overriding factor like they were clearly not afraid to have it be you know american english only from day one uh, or on day one is it alexis or or uh well i mean uh, siri itself oh okay well on another note i posted in the uh in the it's a skype chat here um my friend matthias holman was talking this morning on our slack channel about a little piece that he wrote for um playing around with the neural networks 
uh, back in Mac OS X. Um, I think it's a C file he's written. It's on the GitHub there. Um, so if you're interested in that kind of thing. Yeah, the, the Accelerate framework is, is very similar. oriented yeah. yeah. Well, this 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 uses the Accelerate framework. All the BNNS stuff is part of the Accelerate framework. Right. Which is, which is uh, iOS and Mac OS's uh, library for doing uh, very efficient, high-speed, uh, numerical calculations. Uh, so if you if you ever want to, you know, calculate, uh, um, you know, orbits of of, uh, of planets, <laughs> accounting for uh, gravitational effects from comets going by, and you need a lot of computing power, for example, you would use something like this. Uh, it also does things like Fourier transforms and and a lot of you know just very complicated mathematical numerical things. And uh, so there's there's been a lot. It, it's actually a really really powerful set of tools that that I bet most people don't even know are there. Uh, but there's really really good stuff in there. In in iOS 10, uh, they they just added uh, this BNNS, which is which is what does that stand for? Uh, the NN stands for neural network. I'm not sure what the B and the S stand for, but anyway, it's 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 a set of of, uh, of function calls, C function calls, unfortunately. To evaluate uh, neural networks that have already been trained, neural networks are are things. In case anyone doesn't know, uh, it's a it's a machine learning tool that lets you create a, a highly nonlinear type of model for some effect. Uh, and the reason nonlinear is, is important is that you can use the the uh, the nonlinear effects to capture very complicated behavior. With a with a, a fairly limited number of, of tuning parameters, and and these things are, are pretty powerful for making just very complicated mathematical models of how things behave and how how systems work. Hmm. Uh, now the 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 problem with them is if it's, if it is a problem is that because you're trying to train a computer to think like a very complicated system, you need a lot of data to train it, uh, and what training means is basically you. You start with a whole bunch of inputs and a bunch of known outputs, and you kind of work backwards in the case of a neural network, starting from the known outputs to figure out which which model parameters uh, will will make will produce those outputs for a given set of inputs. And of course, the more input data you give, the more accurate of a model you can get. So once you've got all of the these uh, these fitting parameters, which are basically the coefficients of a bunch of equations. Then you can take any arbitrary set of input data and get the get the right answer out, and so that's kind of a classic machine learning kind of concept. Uh, so we now have some capability built into iOS. Cool. Except I didn't understand. You know, <laughs> blah blah just, uh, neural net blah blah Apple mm, blah blah yeah. math 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 <laughs> math. Yeah. Well, okay. The TLDR, <laughs> no, is, the TLDR is Apple's doing some cool stuff to to make uh, apps work better. How's okay. that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Button her up. Oh, actually, I got a, a bit of a pick. Nah. You got a pick. Shadow you got a pick. pick. Yeah. Where is it? Well, it's it's. I was. I want to talk about the taco meetup I went to yesterday. I want to hear about Jorge Ortiz Fuentes. What's up? <sighs> Well, yesterday we had a, um, a workshop meetup at uh, our TACO group that was hosted by the uh, SCORE. So thanks to Robin Sr. or the people at the SCORE for hosting us. Um, Orhe did a talk on clean architecture, and he's preparing a book, which looks pretty promising based on the, the subject matter of what we worked on yesterday. 
Um, and he's also going to be talking at Tri Swift New York City, which I think is the around Labor Day, so I guess a week from now. Um, but basically what it was is uh, we, we basically wrote an app from scratch. He talked to us about, you know, the different uh, architectures that we currently use. You know, we have Model View Controller, we have MM, MVVM, and he talked about one from the Android camp. Uh, he's a bit of an iOS and Android user, so he borrowed some ideas from um, the... Um, so the, so what we did was we basically created a... used a single story to create a... Um, a sort of an app about real what real programmers are like you know how much emacs experience they have how much caffeine they can consume and and uh, what their name is and what their email address is um and so we wrote this app uh using uh, swift and with the idea that um the idea with clear clean architecture or uh, is that you can you have an entity gateway which uh, can be substitute. You can substitute any kind of data source in the back end if you design your your app in the correct way. So, we, you know, in the case of this particular quick example, we just had a, an entity file. We just loaded up a a programmer object uh, which answered these questions. Um, and so, we demonstrated how to use structs and classes and using extensions on classes to build a nice clean architecture that you could then. You could substitute any kind of backend, whether it's core data or uh, Realm or or just even a flat file. You talked a bit about sort of the philosophy behind why you know you would you would write things towards and how you would write things towards test driven development. Um, and then as an example, he showed us a, a just briefly showed us a list of tests that he had in his in his version of the app. Uh, we didn't go through the tests like I said before, but he had, he was able to create five hundred and thirty four tests that all passed. In, in his example. So looking forward to his book. Um, I think everybody that was at the talk was impressed by the, uh, by the way it uh, panned out. You know, we were basically there for about two and a half, three hours coding, and uh, it was a good time. This is uh, pretty unusual because Taco is just regular bi-monthly meetings, and this kind of came out of nowhere yeah. just a week before. So my understanding, I guess, is that uh, Carl or, or Dave got in touch with uh, this fellow and he was in town. So he yeah. thought he'd do a talk. Yeah. He was coming. Come, he's from Spain. He's works in Spain. He's a freelance uh, iOS developer or Android mobile developer, I guess. Um, yeah. And he, I think he was on route via Toronto to, uh, to talk at uh, Swift New York next week. So, okay. Yeah. It was really, really interesting thing. I mean, it wasn't uh, your, you know, if you hadn't done any Swift, it was, uh, it kind of went kind of quick. Um, and uh, you know, Lost some of us for a bit, but um, yeah, it, uh, I've actually got mine compiled up today and played around with a few bits. And very interesting way, of sort of explaining why. Like his philosophy is, he likes to create a class, um, and rather than you know adding more cruft to the class, he'll create an extension of the class, and that way he can he can see where the where the class is abduct. You know, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Adopting a protocol, conforming to a protocol. Um, in the extension as opposed to doing it in the class and just sort of a way of sort of separating out the, the different parts of your, or your app and, you know, using structs to create model objects and then using those with protocols to uh, create a nice clean looking app and really makes, made a lot of sense. I mean, even though we were just doing a little quick little table view app, um, you know, and, and again, the way he kind of st- structured it with the, uh, the view controllers and the presenter logic or presenter objects being separate you could substitute a table view with a collection view really easily as well. So you can, you know, pl- uh, switch out the the data source or switch out the the presenter views or presenter modes um, quick, very 
easily, you know, if you if you structure your app in such a such a way. So I think he, I forget what he called it, um, but it was like you know, a presenter view presenter uh, entry gateway kind of thing. I forget what he called it, but like on the Android side, there's a MVP model view yes, presenter. That's, right. that's yeah. like a sort of like clean. So it, I was trying to wrap myself around. So when you said clean architecture, you meant yeah. like capital C clean architecture, not yes. just clean as like a, a, a nicety thing to have, but like yeah, pretty specific look at. <laughs> thing that, that Uncle Bob Martin has uh, talked exactly. about. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He talked okay, about Uncle Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. He talked about Uncle Bob and he, he uh, posted a bunch of links. He said, if you really wanted to dig in deeper into it, he, he recommended uh, Uncle Bob. And I think Aaron, you've talked about Uncle Bob before, right? Yeah. We talked about yeah. it on last week or the week yeah, before. So, yeah. It was a good talk. And, you know, um, like I said, uh, we'll have to keep our eye out for the follow up on, uh, on either his talk at Swift uh, New York City or Try Swift New York City, or um, or when his book comes out eventually. But he sort of said, "Don't hold your breath waiting for the book." Don't hold your breath, he said. Yeah, he he says he's oh, real, real slow. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Then I guess we'll we'll hope that he talks about this because uh, I don't suppose anybody was recording at the event. Uh, no, I don't think at so. Taco. No, no, no. Yeah, it's too All right. bad. We, we, I, mean, I'm, I'm, I made a lot of notes in my code, and I think I think a few other people did. So we'll have to, maybe we can. Uh, Ask the other guys in the group. All right. So, Aaron, if people want to get hold of you on the interwebs, where would they do that? As usual, at twitter.com slash Aaron Bay. All right. And uh, Jaime, if people want to get hold of you? On Twitter as at Dev with the Hair. And Mark? Mark R at smapsoft.com. Right. As usual, I am Tim Mitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on Twitter. And that's about it. We'll see you again next week. Good One night. quick thing, a, a quick Google search on Uncle Bob Cleaved Architecture on YouTube shows at least eight videos on this topic there you go so lots of good stuff out there cool all right all right bye 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 Bye. you've just experienced the more than just code podcast if you want to find out more about the show you can visit the more than just code website at mtjc.fm there you'll find a summary and show notes of each episode we list links to the items that we talk about on the show picks for the episode as well as links to the apps on the app store if you like the podcast please leave a comment on the website and write a review on itunes if you're listening on overcast go ahead and press the recommend button it really helps others find out about the show you can also follow the show on twitter at mtjc underscore podcast if you'd like to support the show you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc thanks again for listening guys don't like neural networks huh what's that you guys don't like neural networks no i don't know enough about them yeah. I, like i said I, I was i was watching uh matthias and, and a couple of other guys talk about it this morning i wasn't i was late to the conversation so i really couldn't uh, jump in but yep. i did make a note of uh that when you when it was mentioned by i think aaron or Jaime, mm-hmm. um that i should put that in the link for the people driving at home mm-hmm. might mm-hmm. be interested in that it's like a, a catchphrase in and of itself so it, it, it came about because I, I messed up. I don't even know what episode it was. I couldn't mentally decide between for those of you who are driving, for those of you following along at home, became those of you driving at home, which <laughs> I, didn't, you know, I, didn't even notice until, I didn't even notice that until you said it today, that that's what you say.
Yeah, now now it's been intentional for oh. a few months now. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, just the folks driving folks. Well, what was that? <laughs> for for those of you driving at home. Oh, well, right, right. Okay. <laughs> I didn't even know. Wait, what yeah. are you like wow. doing donuts in your in your driveway? I mean, what would you be doing? No, I just I just you know yeah you're right. I just I think I I made the logical leap to like Mark yeah. is saying uh, you know the it's like those you ever read those text things where they'll uh, it's a it's a paragraph and you read it and the the word the is doubled all the way through it and when you read it your brain just kind of glosses over the two thes and reads just right. the one because we're you know, we're trying to look trying to look at articles in a sentence is not really important. They're just sort of, you know, they're filler pieces, right? Right. Well, mm-hmm. there's a concept called the, the self-correcting brain. Right, yeah. Where 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 you, you your brain kind of learns to just tune all that stuff out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Kind of like tuning out the Fenords. Fenords. Throwing that reference out there. Okay, and it's just kind of floating out no, there. No, it <laughs> went over my head. Okay. Where you been, Jaime? <sighs> Let's see. Uh, well, last week I was. St- oh my gosh! I think when I finally gave up, I think it was five, five forty, five forty-five. I said, "Like I'm, there's no way I'm. I would be an hour away from getting home." Well, we so were hoping I couldn't, you could call us, Sky- you could call us on the Skype app, and we could have had you as the man, man driving in the car on the way home. Yeah, just, <laughs> just right. completely salty about everything in the world. Probably, I'm sure. <laughs> That's right. We can put an explicit tag on the show. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then I just pulled off, went to uh, decide I might as well at least eat dinner at Qdoba and wait for traffic to fix itself. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. At where? Qdoba. At Qdoba. What is that? It's like a like a Chipotle. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. They're, huh. they're competitors. They're. Um, I don't actually get the burritos there. I usually end up getting the uh, the tortilla. Excuse me, the loaded tortilla soup. Oh, yeah. I've been eating that. Yeah, I love tortilla soup. Yeah. What makes a tortilla soup? Like they actually put the bread in the soup? Uh, they well, they put tortilla strips in this case. Yeah. Oh, okay, like noodles sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. But this is really thick. I mean, you you get what's essentially burrito contents. So, yeah, your choice of rice, beans, cheese, sour cream, some sort of um, meat, some sort of yeah, um, salsa, like yeah. medium, mild. Yeah, Hot. it's not low calorie. <laughs> yeah, it's no, funny. no. They, they say like eight, eight, eight hundred to a thousand calories, depending wow. on what you get. I think on wow, that. wow, yeah, yeah. There's an interesting guy I've been watching on um, British TV, um, Marcus Desaad or something like that. I don't know if you've heard of him, Marquis Desaad. I've heard of him. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's more. It's, it's it's a name similar to that, but he's a he's a mathematician, and he did um, he did a. a series called the history of mass it might be on uh, netflix oh i've seen that yeah so so he just recently did one like there was a show we used to watch carol and i called connections which connected a whole bunch of historical discoveries with you know like how did how do we get the color purple right the color purple was was originally for kings and queens because it was really hard to make and then somebody burning like when you burn coal lamps it made coal black on the it would collect on the glasses from the gas, right? And when you when you took the coal black and you washed it and threw it in water, it would turn purple, and that's how they developed purple dye. And it, like sort of how these things all connect, right? So, so this Marcus guy, um, Marcus to something, has this new series we just started watching um, on on these on these same kind of connections, how different discoveries were made. And uh, so t- yesterday's episode was how did we get how did we how did we get uh, 
such precision in terms of measuring things, right? So he talked about Fahrenheit, the guy who invented the Fahrenheit scale, and he found that the Fahrenheit scale was, you know, and he used, you know, the uh, boiling point and the freezing point of water as a sort of the starting and ending point. And then he found that, so the Celsius scale came out of that, and it gave more uh, thing, more, um, and then the, the Kelvin scale, was it Kelvin, the one, yeah, degrees Kelvin, right? Kelvin, yeah. Yeah, and Kelvin loses accuracy as it gets, as you move higher up into, like, you know, the thousands of degrees, whatever. Uh, all this kind of stuff and how it connects. And, well, know, Kelvin they, and Celsius are the same thing. Are they, Just like, offset, same? Yeah, offset by 273 degrees. Really? Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah, because Celsius, because absolute zero Kelvin is when it, when all motion stops, right? Is that the idea? Well, uh, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that may be more detailed than you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, so, I yeah, mean, yeah. So the short answer is, uh, all motion never stops. Oh, yes, I forgot. I'm effect. talking to a physicist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. am I doing? <laughs> but uh, to a to a reasonably good approximation, sure, yeah. stuff stops. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty effing cold, is what it is, right? It is. Yeah. So coming back to our our ma- our man here, the name of the show was Precision: The Measure of All Things, mm-hmm. which is what I was watching. But I think I also saw the Secret Rules of Modern Living: Colon Algorithms. That's, I think that's on um, Netflix. It was on Netflix Canada right now. I don't know what you guys get down there. So We just get Netflix. <laughs> there's no maple leaf on our UI. Right. <laughs> no, there's no there's, it's funny. There's no, there's none on ours. Like, for instance, do you guys have Star Wars on yours yet? Like the, the last, the latest installment? Uh, Netflix? Yeah. Uh, I don't have to check, but I, I do remember that, that Canada was going to be one of the yeah, first the and so only, breaks. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we don't have, we don't have Alexa, but we can watch Star Wars. <laughs> but you can't use Apple Pay to buy it, though, right? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, by speaking of which, speaking of which, as I was going through the archives the other day, um, I discovered I have a I knew I had a copy of Star Wars on DVD, an official release from from Lucas. That is the actual original theatrical release of Star Wars. Oh, without all the um, the the. Uh... Uh, hand shooting second stuff. And all yeah, that. none, none yeah. of the, none of the. It even doesn't say a new hope when you know in the the scroll at the very beginning of the movie, like you know you see the Star Wars thing, you know goes bang, right. and then mm-hmm. as it comes up, it just doesn't say Episode Four. It, it doesn't say Episode Four. It doesn't say a new hope. It just says it's a time of blah 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 or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like it's the original as I remember seeing it back in 1977. You know. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, because I was really confused when it came when people started calling it a new hope. I'm like, where did that come from? Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. So, well, that was all the Lucas revisionist history, right? Yeah, Didn't he do a bunch of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, he started. So he, I think, when it came to VHS, they put a new hope on it, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. right? And then, because uh, yeah, because because the reality was, you know, back then in the 70s, you made a movie and it was pretty rare to do a sequel. You know, it had to be like had to be like oh, the Omen quality. Like the Omen was, you know, remember the Omen. Sure. Yeah, that yep. was one of the one of the few that got a uh, like. Even Jaws two was a stretch, right? <laughs> and there was a Jaws three, believe it or not. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so well, there was Rocky too, right? Well, and, well, and, and, and with the T O O, not not the two. <laughs> yeah, Rocky was so, what seventy eight, I guess, right? Yeah, it's all around the same time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's actually been six or seven Rocky movies now, right? So, but I mean, like, like as I'm saying though, like the. Star Wars was kind of like, you know, it, well, I guess it was also an American graffiti, too, and that didn't go very far, did it, right? So, But what, what I'm saying, though, is like, you know, I, th- I think it's... <laughs> What's your point, Tim? <laughs> well, I'm saying that, like, it was unlikely. I really don't believe that. I mean, he sort of wrote... He said at the time that 
calling it episode four was a sort of throwback to the old serial days right, of right. Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and stuff like that, right? So, which I which I totally got when he, yeah, you know, I was yeah. into those things when when the movie came out, right? So, right, right, right. But uh, yeah. So. Oh, so at the beginning, it was from the start. It was episode four. I don't remember. Yeah, no, I, I believe I, it was supposed to be the fourth episode. Yeah, I, I do remember that part of the story, right? But uh, yeah, but in, yeah. but in, in this movie that I've got, it literally just says, you know, it says on the tin, it says it starts off saying Star Wars, and it doesn't say anything about New Hope or Episode Four or whatever. Just right. mm-hmm. well, that would be yeah. crazy to put the four on the marketing material because that would just confuse the hell out of people. And then yeah, right? yeah, I think I think that was the thing. Though, was it was like I said, it was a throwback to the serial days of of yore, but uh, right. But most people aren't going to get that. Yeah, I mean, the reality was like he made it on a shoestring budget too, and and you know, I, I don't think there were many studios that got behind it really. You know, so. right? Yeah, and he never had any expectations that it was actually going to be a hit. No, and you know, and, and it is. You know, I've said this before. It is pretty cheesy when you get down to it, but still. Yeah. But if you compare that to way star way uh, sci fi movies were at the time, it was like light years ahead of its time. Except mm-hmm. for uh, two thousand and one. Right, that was the. But even two, even two thousand and one, if you look at, if you go back and watch the movie, there are some scenes there, like like they did build the the big spaceship and they did kind of like film it, right? right. But the, you know those little those little pods that used to get into um, as the pod goes away from the ship and comes towards the ship. If you look at it, it's just a big cardboard cutout, and they're moving it towards the camera and wait. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's not like you know where where the. Um, they used the motion capture, not the motion capture, but they 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 had the the yeah, I guess it was motion capture. They had they developed the rails that they could move. They have the big models, and they would basically move the cameras using a computer to control them as they panned by. You know, mm-hmm. that was sort of the first time you saw that kind of special effect, and and the speed at which the movie moved was a lot faster than most uh, sci-fi's at the time. You know, <laughs> I, have, right. I have a movie like I think I told you before about the the guy who did Thunderbird. You know the animated marionette thing. He did a movie, a uh, live action movie called Journey to the Far Side of the Sun, which will put you to sleep. I think we talked about this because yeah, yeah. that was the first movie I ever saw. Really? The yep. In the theater. Yep. Journey to the Far Side of the Sun. That's pretty. Yeah. Yep. Really. Yep. Yep. How old were you been? <sighs> Five or six, probably. I did. Uh, yeah, I saw it. I saw it on TV once. You know, and I think uh, I actually have a copy of it on DVD somewhere. But somebody, somebody, my friend. I think my son's borrowed it in his pile of. Yeah. So that would have been like. 73 74 right something like that uh yeah it was super marionation actually i have my you know i, was, I, was, I don't know if you guys have ever heard about this app called delicious library have you heard of that oh i've heard of the name it. sounds familiar but i yeah. can't visualize yeah. it yeah it's uh, and I, I think it's version three now but i have version two and what what it does is it allows you to use your camera on your mac as a as a barcode scanner and it scans the barcode on your movies and catalogs your movies and your your dvds and your books or whatever mm. Mm-hmm. And sort of goes onto Amazon and gets you a price, and sort of like you know, if you're if you're a collector of things, you know, it's kind of handy. Like you know, uh, you can also keep carry around the list. Um, you can you, at one point you could create a web page and serve save it on your server, and then you could go back and you know, if you were at the store, you could look and see do I own this movie or not. But right. Uh, but it, it, I was reading another website today. He's actually created an iPad, an iPhone app that will wirelessly. You can use it as a wireless scanner. Uh, so using Bluetooth, I guess. Back to your uh, library, but I have that movie here, so let's have a look for it. Uh, Tim, was this the is the Star Wars bit coming back to that? Was that the laser disc that you were 
You did the Vine video one, the one I said that you're probably yeah, going to get yeah. waterboarded by Disney yeah. next time you come in. It wasn't. It wasn't actually. So what I actually did was I was actually playing it off the DVD. I was. I had. I had my Mac in in the garage, right? And I I put my one of my base stations hung it out the window in the kitchen so I could get wireless in the backyard, right? Um, yeah, because I was cataloging my my uh, my discs that are in boxes in the garage. <laughs> I pulled it out and I thought, oh, hey, look, check it out. I, I, I couldn't know what I, I didn't know what I'd done with it. So, so according to IMDb, Journey to the Far Side of the Sun was released in 1969. Really? When I would have been one year old. So <laughs> I guess it was either my memory is failing me and it wasn't the first movie I saw. Yeah. Uh, or it was a re-release or something. Yeah. Hmm. I might have, well, so I, I I saw it on TV. Like I remember watching it on TV one one uh, night, but. Uh, Let's see. Yeah, the copy I have was released in 2008. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't say... Oh, yeah, January 1st, 1969 was its theatrical debut. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Huh. Which is, you know what, that's not, that's not that far from 2001. No, it's not. 2001 no. was... Let me go 2001... Because I think that was 68 or something, right? I don't know. This one doesn't say. I've got, I've got four copies of it, apparently. 1968, April 6, 1968. Just before I was born. Um, yeah. By the way, we do have some real uh, Ask Ed TJC follow-ups. Some, some, some guy named Greg Heo. He wants to know exactly. what... Yeah, he wants to know. He said two of them. Let's do the second one first. It says, does Dr. Rubin prefer P or N channel transistors? Uh, oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a good question. Of course, I prefer CMOS. I prefer complimentary. Oh, there you go. Okay, that's yeah. a good answer. All right. Yep. What, what'd you leave it? Leave it? Leave it at that? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Not explain what that is. Exactly. Perfect. Yep. yep. <laughs> See how far the uh, the the one credit course went. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Covered that or not? Exactly. Yeah.